Hi, this is Alan K. Rohde, author and film historian, and you are listening to Tim Millard's podcast, The Extras. Hello and welcome to The Extras, where we take you behind the scenes of your favorite TV shows, movies and animation and their release on digital DVD, Blu-ray and 4K or your favorite streaming site. I'm Tim Millard, your host. And today, George Feldenstein from Warner Brothers joins the show to take us through the February 2022 releases from the Warner Archive. But George, before we jump into the first film, we're going to be talking about, I was just curious how the new year is going so far for the Warner Archive. Well, New Year is uh, very strong because uh, we're working on a bunch of projects for the first part of the year that are not plentiful in number, but are plentiful in terms of the amount of work that's going into them. So it's making things uh, very interesting. And next month, we're going to be talking about two very complex restoration projects. And we don't have anything too complex to talk about today, but they're very exciting releases. uh, As far as I'm concerned, all new to Blu-ray and on the film side. And we have a third season of a very uh, cult favorite television series. So that puts us in a good position. I always... I'm shocked by like how fast January goes and here we're already looking at February and part of that's kind of coming off of the holidays and everything. But it feels like we just talked about the January and some of the plans for 2022 and fans who didn't have a chance to listen to the January episode will want to check that out. But why don't we go ahead and dive into the February releases that we have? We're starting uh, February with a quintessential Warner Brothers classic from 1933. This is Gold Diggers of 1933. And Gold Diggers of 1933 was put into production very quickly as a response to the huge success of 42nd Street, which was really a groundbreaking film for Warner Brothers. And for the musical genre, in the sense that in the early sound era, which was only a few years before, there were so many musicals made, and most of them were terrible, uh, that audiences got tired of musicals. And films were made around 1930 and 31, where the studio ended up cutting out the musical numbers, or most of them, before the film was released because they didn't want people to think it was a musical. Oh, wow. And uh, they took Broadway musicals, made films of them, and only included maybe one song or two songs. Or in many, many cases, they made them just as straight dramas or comedies without any music because the musical had been just like poison almost. So uh, for a couple of years in the early 30s, you really didn't see uh, very many musicals after sound had initiated with an overwhelming amount. It was like a smorgasbord of too many. And they were all 
suffering from this problem of being not very good. And suddenly, 1932, Busby Berkeley, uh, who had been working at the Samuel Goldman studio, was hired by Warner Brothers to do the musical numbers for 42nd Street, which was based on a very successful book that had been written by a Broadway chorus performer. So it was like someone you are there kind of thing of writing from what he knew. And the book was a hit and the movie was an enormous hit. And it really doesn't have any songs in it until the show portion of the film, which is at the very end. So it really was a comedy drama for, I'd say, two thirds of its content. And then at the end, you see the big production numbers from the show. And that was when Busby Berkeley did his now famous, uh, spectacular, geometric choreography. And it wasn't as much the dancing that was the choreography. It was the staging and the kaleidoscopic effects. And that was revolutionary. And between that and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers making their first film together at RKO, the genre was back. So Warner Brothers said, okay, 42nd Street is a huge hit. We have two new big stars in Dick Powell and Ruby Keeler. What are we going to do and what can we do quickly? And they decided to do a remake of a remake. Because there was originally a play called The Gold Diggers, and it was about young lady performers on Broadway who were chorus girls who were looking for rich men to marry. And uh, it's, you know, an old chestnut of a story. I think the first film was made in 1923, and it was silent. And when Sam came along, they did a remake with songs called Gold Diggers of Broadway. It was released in 1929, and it was filmed partially in two-color Technicolor. And it launched uh, a couple of songs that became popular, like Tiptoe Through the Tulips. And um, it doesn't exist today. The film is basically a lost film, although segments of it survive. And the audio survives through the Vitaphone discs. But uh, the film itself uh, does not exist in its entirety. Little fragments have popped up over the last couple of decades. But the likelihood of things popping up uh, diminishes with each year because these were all nitrate films and nitrate deteriorates and decomposes over time. So they decided to remake the Gold Diggers of Broadway as Gold Diggers of 1933. And they used many of the cast members from 42nd Street and added some performers that weren't in 42nd Street, including Warren William, uh, who's not a musical performer, but he had a major leading role in the story. 
and also the lovely Joan Blondell, who was in a lot of the Busby Berkeley films and many comedies and dramas at Warner Brothers in the early 30s. She was a staple performer, and uh, she had a long career. She was in the movie Grease as the waitress. So uh, a lot of people know Joan Joan Blondell. I, I think she passed away in the 80s, but she had a very long career. But she was a very young, very attractive uh, leading lady and sometimes supporting lady. And uh, she was in Gold Diggers of 1933. The film begins with the production number, We're in the Money, which was written for the film by Harry Warren and Al Dubin, who had written the score for 42nd Street. And Ginger Rogers is singing, We're in the Money. And it was the height of the Depression. And this was, these films were primarily responsible for helping people shake the blues of the Depression. And it was like, and when we see the landlord, we're going to look that guy right in the eye. You know, uh, that was the attitude of these films. And this was also made before the production code. So while 42nd Street didn't really have any spicy uh, content that would now, of course, be considered PG, but at the time was a little racy. Uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 is a little more on the racy side, and it's very, very enjoyable. And it was directed by Mervyn Leroy, and Busby Berkeley directed the musical numbers. And the musical numbers come, like 42nd Street, pretty much, at the end of the movie. The difference between the two films is 42nd Street didn't open up with a big musical number. Gold Diggers in 1933, as soon as the titles are over, bang, you're into wearing the money. But the other big Busby Berkeley production numbers that are in the film include Petting in the Park. And that's one of the, one of the songs that's a little bit naughty, shall we say? (laughs) And uh, one of my personal treasures is, I have a Japanese recording made in 1933 of Petten in the Park in Japanese that the song actually became so popular that they recorded it. They liked American culture very much in Japan before the war and after. You know, it was the people liked what they liked. You know, the politics and the people are always separated usually. And in any case, uh, someone once gave me a recording of Petten in the Park in Japanese recorded in 1933. And it sounds just, you know, the orchestra sounds exactly like an American orchestra, but it, it, it's great uh, that the song became, you know, so popular. And then there's another number that's very famous, The Shadow Waltz. And it's a very long number, and it's uh, one of the highlights of the number is when they basically turn off the lights and the, the women are dancing with neon violins that make geometric shapes. And the last number in the movie is 
Remember My Forgotten Man, which is a depression plea by Joan Blondell for war veterans. You know, World War I had ended 15 years before, but just as today we have veterans that have PTSD, they show people on bread lines uh, waiting for food and they show widows who don't have fathers for their children because of the war. And it's an amazing number. It's the kind of thing like when I was in film school, uh, they showed Gold Diggers of 1933 in a class to use as an example of how basically this was a very typical Warner Brothers, let's be the the proletariat people studio and deal with these issues of people, you know, dealing with not being able to get a job or, you know, still suffering from the after effects of the war. And that's how the film ends. The film ends with that production number. At this point, uh, next year, it will have its 90th anniversary. And uh, it's still very much edgy and fun uh, entertainment. And best of all, now it's on Blu-ray. It was on DVD in 2006. And uh, we wanted to remaster for Blu-ray. Uh, because even though we had a high definition master, it wasn't up to Blu-ray standards. So we went back and created a new one. And that's on the Blu-ray along with, uh, Warner Brothers cartoons that use some of the songs that, uh, were in Gold Diggers of 1933, like We're in the Money and Pet in the Park. They would, the reason why Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies are called what they are, the original purpose of them was to popularize with these animated cartoons songs the studio owned and had in their new movies. And what's really cool is not only do we have these vintage cartoons to enliven the disc, but we have a pretty substantial making of featurette that goes into the background of the making of Gold Diggers of 33. As a result, it's a really terrific disc. Well, next on the schedule, you have uh, a 1943 film. You want to tell us about Edge of Darkness? Edge of Darkness is one of the many films that Errol Flynn made in the 19. 40s in the early 40s during World War II to enhance and enforce patriotism. Hollywood did as much as is humanly possible to support the war effort. And there was no division within the country, nor was there any division within the industry everybody united to be part of the war effort. And uh, Errol Flynn made many truly fine patriotic films during World War II for Warner Brothers. 
And Edge of Darkness is a thriller, and it has phenomenal acting from many great actors, aside from the stars, Errol Flynn and Ann Sheridan. And it's directed by Lewis Milestone, who had directed the Oscar-winning All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930 with its pacifist anti-war message. And 13 years later, he was doing a fine job directing Edge of Darkness with a very pro, I don't want to say pro-war, but pro-allies fighting a, you know, a, a fight for survival story that was uh, very well received by critics and audiences alike. And um, this is not about uh, American soldiers. This actually takes place in Norway. And it's about the Norwegians being overtaken by the Nazis and how the Norwegians fought back. And so um, you have kind of the the irony of uh, Errol Flynn, who... Most people think he was British or from New Zealand. He was actually from Tasmania. And uh, some would say he was the Tasmanian devil when it came to uh, his uh, exploits uh, in nightlife. But he was very committed to uh, the war effort. And he plays uh, a leading figure in this group of Norwegians who fight back against the Nazis who are trying to invade their otherwise peaceful country. And it's a really terrific film. And it is from a brand new master. And it's uh, a beautiful Blu-ray. And uh, it not only shows Errol Flynn in the leading role, but it gives a really uh, meaty role to Anne Sheridan as the leading lady, where just as in this country, uh, the women of America fought on the home front by taking over the jobs the men did because the men all had to go to fight. Well, in Europe, the women not only did things like that, but they also fought and defended there because they had the soldiers at their footsteps, uh, the enemy soldiers. And Anne Sheridan is really wonderful in this. And Errol Flynn and Anne Sheridan worked together many times, but I think this is possibly uh, their best teaming. Um, and there are, that, that's up for debate, you know, but uh, the screenplay was also written by... Uh, Robert Rawson, who was a very uh, famous screenwriter who uh, won Oscars and nominated for many. Uh, he had basically, you could say, this is a very, there's nothing uh, untoward about this film, but it's, it's very adult. It's very, um, there's nothing that's, like some some of the older war films, you go back and look at them and you think, you know, well, that's a little corny or cheesy or that's not believable. 
There's nothing like that in this movie. This is a very powerful, strong film that has a strong following even today. And you have to realize uh, this film is almost 80 years old, but it really gives you a sense of what was going on at the time. And you also have some great stage actors, or I should say actresses, uh, Dame Judith Anderson, before she became a dame, I believe, when she was just Judith Anderson. And she, of course, is famous for playing Medea on the stage on Broadway and London and all over the place. But she was acting, I believe, until the 1980s as a very elderly woman. But she's got a great part in this, and she was terrific in so many films. People remember her as... Uh, Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca Hitchcock's Rebecca. She's just a phenomenal actress. She's got a great role in this film, as does Ruth Gordon, who's best known to contemporary audiences as being in Rosemary's Baby. And she was in Where's Papa and Harold and Maude. A lot of people think of her as that. Uh, she was an actress on the stage in the 30s, and uh, she really didn't make too many movies as an actress in the earlier years of her life. But she and her husband, Garson Kanan, uh, wrote screenplays together, and most famously, uh, Adam's Rib with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn was written by Ruth Gordon and uh, Garson Kanan. So um, just a, a real incredible group of talents brought together here. And the evil Nazi is played by Helmut Gedantin, and he's terrific. And Walter Houston is terrific. And um, I can't say enough good things about this film because, frankly, there's a lot there. Uh, Walter Houston, uh, Nancy Coleman. Just a tremendous cast, and this is what the Warner Factory turned out. You know, they would turn out 52 films a year. And um, I also have to mention that the score is by Franz Waxman. Franz Waxman was one of the great Hollywood Golden Age composers, and like so many others of his ilk, was a refugee who left Germany from, uh, because of the Nazis. And uh, his first, I think, his first scoring job in the U.S. was for The Bride of Frankenstein. If it wasn't his first, it was one of his earliest. He started at Universal, went to MGM, and then came to Warner Brothers. So you had this incredible group of... Uh, musicians writing scores, Max Steiner, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, and Franz Waxman, all writing amazing scores for the films at Warner Brothers. We could have a whole extras podcast just talking about each one of those people. Uh, but his music here is really quite wonderful. And uh, I can't say enough good things about this film. I also want to mention that it doesn't have a complete Warner Night at the Movies, but we do have some wartime cartoons in HD 
as well as a short subject from 1943, also in HD. So it really makes a terrific Blu-ray, and we're very proud of it. The last of our three February Blu-rays takes you ahead in about five years, and it takes you across the uh, the mountains to the other side of the valley to Culver City and MGM. And uh, it's 1948, and uh, the film is The Three Musketeers, which has been oft-filmed. And given that the story has been in the public domain, even when this movie was made, it, the story was in the public domain, there had been Three Musketeers films with Douglas Fairbanks in the in the silent era. There was a 1935 RKO film. There was a comedy version with Don Amici and the Ritz Brothers at Twin Century Fox in 1939. But in 1948, MGM decided to pull out all the stops and make a lavish, swashbuckling, fun. Three Musketeers in Technicolor. So you've got an all-star cast in this film. So you had Gene Kelly playing D'Artagnan, and his lovely leading lady was none other than Lana Turner. And also appearing were Van Heflin and Angela Lansbury and Frank Morgan and Vincent Price, Keenan Wynn. And um, it was absolutely superb. George Sidney was the director, and George Sidney is usually known as a director of musicals. He directed Gene Kelly in Anchors Away a few years before, and he later directed Showboat, Kiss Me Kate, and even Elvis Presley and Anne Margaret in Viva Las Vegas. But he also knew his way around a swashbuckler or two. He directed this, and then years later directed Scaramouche, in 1953, which was a huge hit for the studio. So this film was a box office blockbuster. And to see all these stars performing in Technicolor and it being just a great deal of fun, you also get a a tremendous classic that has stood the test of time. And uh, because the film is in color, it was reissued several times. And it holds up wonderfully. But Gene Kelly's athleticism as a dancer made him a perfect swashbuckling swordsman. And the sword sword fight scenes are exciting. The comedy is good. The screenplay is good. It's really a a winner all the way around. It was uh, produced by uh, Pandro Berman, who had produced all the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies at RKO in the 30s, and then went on to produce several award-winning films at MGM. And it's just a superb movie. And we have a Tom and Jerry cartoon to add a little bit of a cherry on top of the Sunday in HD, The Two Mouseketeers, which is with uh, Tom and Jerry taking place around the, the same time. The film's are not of the same era. The cartoon, I think, was made a couple of years later. But we thought it would be fun to add that to the package. And it makes for a great disc. And most importantly, 
This is restored off the original Technicolor camera negatives. So it looks lustrous and it's really terrific. And we're very, very proud of it. And then last but not least, our, our last release of the month is not a Blu-ray, but is a DVD. It is season three of Legacies, which is a CW show that was a spinoff from the Vampire Diaries as well as the originals. And it's held up the legacy of those two hit shows very well and uh, continues on the CW to this day. So this is the uh, third season and it continues the... Uh, the story of the twins, uh, Lizzie and Josie and their various amorous adventures, as well as, uh, the vampire diaries originals sensibility and the fans of those shows have supported these shows, this series, I should say. And that's why we're bringing season three to DVD. And that wraps up our February. So it's not a lot of releases, but each one has a lot of punch and we're very excited about it. Well, George, thanks for coming on the show again to give a review of all of the February releases. It sounds like a, a nice variety of different genres and should have something for everybody. That is our goal uh, is given there are so many different kinds of fans for so much different content and given the extent of our library, that is the goal of the Warner archive is to have something for everyone. So I hope we can do this again uh, to talk about what we have in store for March. Thanks again to Warner brothers, executive George Feltenstein for coming on the show to take us through the February, 2022 releases from the Warner archive. For those of you interested in listening to more episodes on Warner Archive releases, you can find links on the website at www.theextras.tv, as well as a listing of all of George's episodes. Also, follow the show on Facebook or Twitter at The Extras TV or Instagram at TheExtras.tv to stay up to date on the latest episodes and for exclusive images and behind-the-scenes information about the episodes and upcoming guests. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave us a review at iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. That will ensure you don't miss any of your favorite guests. Until next time, you've been listening to The Extras with Tim Millard. Stay slightly obsessed. Hi, this is Tim Millard, host of the Extras Podcast, and I wanted to let you know that we have a new private Facebook group for fans of the Warner Archive and Warner Brothers Catalog physical media releases. So if that interests you, you can find the link on our Facebook page or look for the link in the podcast show notes.